Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. You are listening to Ayan. Right across from me, we have George. Good morning. And uh, the beautiful Anya. Uh, good morning. <laughs> Sorry, George, that you didn't get beautiful. <laughs> you should get beautiful too. Uh, Lauren isn't here with us today. She will be back next week. Um, for those who haven't been listening, first of all, shame on you. <laughs> but also, we've been running um, a special program called the Summer Program, where we're trying to tackle big topics in a way that's easy to understand. And we've had amazing guests kind of break down theories. Um, because as we know, knowledge should be um, in the hands of the community and not in um, these kind of white ivory towers. So that's what we've been doing. Mm-hmm. Um, today we have some amazing guests at, I think your interview is first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at about 7.15 we're going to be talking to Dr. Shakira Hussein um, about all things intersectionality and disability. Um, some controversial topics maybe, but stay tuned. We'll see. <laughs> At, at 8 a.m., um, we have Mario. Mario is from Chronically Chilled, which is an amazing program you should be listening to. And um, he presents that show with um, another producer called um, Maurice. So they look at chronic illness and they have some interesting guests who talk about their experience of chronic illness and so on. So today, that's why we've brought him on to... Just explain what chronic illness is, um, why it's something that everyone should know about because there's bound to be someone affected by it that you know or you could personally be going through it. And to also break down the myths, just to break down the myths of productivity, break down the myth of um, that it's a temporary thing, it's not, it's long term, it's something that you've got to manage for the rest of your life. And, yeah, so just take away all the stigma from chronic illness. Mm, sounds really exciting. Yes, yeah. it is. It is. Um, so what did you beautiful ladies get up to over the weekend? Um, I was trying to not die from the heat stroke, mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, so on Sunday, there was the Midsummer Pride March, which I really wanted to go to, but it was just too hot. So I marched at home in solitary. <laughs> <laughs> but we just wanted to mention that because um, uh, there was an announcement 
on I'm not sure if it was made for the first time on Sunday or before then. But anyway, the announcement was that uh, Victoria will be the first jurisdiction in Australia to outlaw the practice of psychological therapy or counselling to try to suppress or change a person's sexuality or gender identity, which they call conversion therapy, quote-unquote. Um, and that's really exciting because that's in Australia's first and it's, it's, you know, it's really shameful that it took this long for us to get there, but we're going to be doing it. So that's really mm. exciting. I swear to God, I thought that was banned already. It does I seem so yeah, archaic that so. you would, yeah, yeah, you would think. Yeah. yeah. And it'd be really interesting to see what the law would look like in terms of, you know, the difference between legislation and enforcement and how that's going to work out and, you know, KIV. Keep in view. <laughs> Keep in what, sorry? In view. Keep in view. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, well, that's a uh, summer school lesson number that one is for very you. <laughs> um, I, yeah. I happened to see Anya at Sampa's gig at the zoo, and Sampa were a huge fan of Sampa. Did you both go to that gig? Mm. Yes. Didn't that. But guess who didn't get to hang out with Sampa backstage? Who? Me. <laughs> <laughs> did you go backstage? Yeah, I did, um, <laughs> which was fun. Um, and yeah. I unghosted me the entire time. <laughs> I, you know, yeah. okay, <laughs> we'll talk about it. We'll off talk about air. this off air, yeah. And, well, I think we might have to res- wrestle about it as well. <laughs> um, so, first audio that we're playing yes it's called i'm not your inspiration thank you very much and it's um by stella young who's uh, who was a um, very famous comedian journalist and an advocate um a disability advocate and she talks about um how society has this habit of turning disabled people into inspiration <coughs> porn and yeah it's, it's a really good um talk so we'll play that for you now I grew up in a very small country town in Victoria. Uh, I had a very normal, low-key kind of upbringing. Uh, you know, I went to school, I hung out with my friends, I fought with my younger sisters. It was all very normal. And when I was 15, a member of my local community approached my parents and wanted to nominate me for a Community Achievement Award. And my parents said, mm, that's really nice. But there's kind of one glaring problem with that. She hasn't actually achieved anything. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And they were right, you know. I went to school, I got good marks, I had a very low-key after-school job in my mum's hairdressing salon, and I spent a lot of time watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Dawson's Creek. Yeah. I know, what a contradiction. (laughs) But they were right, you know, I wasn't doing anything that was out of the ordinary at all. Um, I wasn't doing anything that could be considered an achievement if you took disability out of the equation. Years later, I was on my second teaching round in a Melbourne high school and I was about 20 minutes into a year 11 legal studies class uh, when this boy put up his hand and said, hey miss, when are you going to start doing your speech? And I said, what speech? You know, I'd been talking to them about defamation law for a good 20 minutes. And uh, he said, you know, like your motivational speaking. You know, when people in wheelchairs come to school, they usually say, like, inspirational stuff. It's usually in the big hall. And that's when it dawned on me. 
This kid had only ever experienced disabled people as objects of inspiration. We are not, you know, to this kid, and it's not his fault. I mean, that's true for many of us. You know, for lots of us, disabled people are not our teachers or our doctors or our manicurists. We're not real people. We are there to inspire. Um, and in fact, you know, I'm sitting on this stage looking like I do in this wheelchair and you are probably kind of expecting me to inspire you, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint you dramatically. I'm not here to inspire you. I'm here to tell you that we have been lied to about disability. Yeah, we've been sold the lie that disability is a bad thing. Capital B, capital T. It's a bad thing. And to live with disability makes you exceptional. It's not a bad thing. And it doesn't make you exceptional. And in the past few years, we've been able to propagate this lie even further via social media. You know, you may have seen images like this one. The only disability in life is a bad attitude. Hmm. Or this one, your excuse is invalid indeed. Or this one, before you quit, try. Yeah. These are just a couple of examples, but there are a lot of these images out there. You know, you might have seen the one, the little girl with no hands, drawing a picture with a pencil held in her mouth. Uh, you might have seen a child running on carbon fibre prosthetic legs. Um, and these images, you know, there are lots of them out there. They are what we call inspiration porn. <laughs> and I use the term porn deliberately because it, they objectify one group of people for the benefit of another group of people. So in this case, we're objectifying disabled people for the benefit of non-disabled people. The purpose of these images is to inspire you, to motivate you, so that we can look at them and think, well, however bad my life is, it could be worse. I could be that person. But what if you are that person? I've lost count of the number of times that I've been approached by strangers wanting to tell me that they think I'm brave or inspirational. And this was long before my work had any kind of public profile. They were just kind of congratulating me for managing to get up in the morning and remember my own name. <laughs> and it, it is objectifying. These images, these images objectify disabled people for the benefit of non-disabled people. You know, they are there so that you can look at them and think that things aren't so bad for you, to put your worries into perspective. And life as a disabled person is actually somewhat difficult. We do overcome some things. But the things that we're overcoming are not the things that you think they are. They are not things to do with our bodies. Uh, I use the term disabled people quite deliberately because I subscribe to what's called the social model of disability, which tells us that we are more disabled by our bodies, by our, the society that we live in, rather, than by our bodies and our diagnoses. So I have, uh, I've lived in this body a long time. I'm quite fond of it. It, it, uh, it does the things that I need it to do, and I've learnt, I've learnt to use it to the best of its capacity, just as you have. And that's the thing about those kids in those pictures as well. 
they're not doing anything out of the ordinary. They are just using their bodies to the best of their capacity. So is it really fair to objectify them in the way that we do, to share those images? Uh, people mean, people, when they say, you know, you're an inspiration, they mean it as a compliment. They mean it as a compliment. And I know why it happens. It's because of the lie. It's because we've been sold this lie that disability makes you exceptional. And it honestly doesn't. And I know what you're thinking. You know, I'm up here bagging out inspiration. You're thinking, geez, Stella, aren't you inspired sometimes by some things? And the thing is, I am. I learn from other disabled people all the time. I'm learning not that I'm luckier than them, though. I am learning that it's a genius idea to use a pair of barbecue tongs to pick up things that you drop. <laughs> I'm learning that nifty trick where you can charge your mobile phone battery from your chair battery. <laughs> genius. We are learning from each other's strength and endurance, not against our bodies and our diagnoses, but against a world that exceptionalises and objectifies us. I really think that this lie that we've been sold about disability is the greatest injustice. Um, it, is, it, makes life, it makes life hard for us. Um, the, and that quote, the only disability in life is a bad attitude, the reason that that's bullshit <laughs> is because it's just not true. Because of the social model of disability, you know, no amount of smiling at a flight of stairs has ever made it turn into a rap. Never. You know, smiling at a television screen isn't going to make closed captions appear for people who are deaf. You know, no amount of standing in the middle of a bookshop and radiating a positive attitude is going to turn all those books into braille. It's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Um, I really want to live in a world where disability is not the exception but the norm. I want to live in a world where a 15-year-old girl sitting in her bedroom watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer isn't referred to as achieving anything because she's doing it sitting down. I want to live in a world where we don't have such low expectations of disabled people that we are congratulated for getting out of bed and remembering our own names in the morning. I want to live in a world where we value genuine achievement for disabled people. And I want to live in a world where a kid in year 11 in a Melbourne high school is not one bit surprised that his new teacher is a wheelchair user. Disability doesn't make you exceptional, but questioning what you think you know about it does. Thank you. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR and we just heard a TED Talk from Stella Young which is called I'm Not Your Inspiration, Thank You Very Much and that was from about a, oh, a couple of... Yeah, that would have been over four years ago mm. now. Um, we just had the um, the anniversary of her four, like four years of her passing in December last year. It's um It's such a powerful talk and it's a point that I think a lot of disability... Um, 
activists speak about a lot in terms of the way that people are like, oh, you're such an inspiration, you know, and I'm just reading Carly Finley's book uh, that's just come out. It's called Say Hello, and she talks about this as well and how it's actually such a harmful idea to say that because then basically what you're saying is that you're making like other people's lives, they feel better about themselves when they see someone that has a disability. Yeah. And she also talks about Stella Young and how much she respected her and how she gave Carly a platform to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I think through the Ramp Up website, which um, which was, has actually been closed by the government, but that was a, really? um, a platform for disability voices. Mm. Ridiculous that that was shut down. Yeah. Um, but it is really beautiful to hear how she talks about Stella Young and how she wasn't just about kind of being her own public figure. She really made sure that other people were also able to have the opportunity to speak yeah so yeah we hopefully we'll have an interview with Carly in a couple of weeks time yes after hopefully school. after you've read it and yes. then you've given it to us yeah I think we all need to read <laughs> yeah it's um it, so far I'm about a third of the way through yeah. it's it's a really really good read yeah but it but inspo porn like when you think about yes, it yeah especially with because it's it's said as a well-meaning thing but the way we look at disability, and I'm I'm hoping to, today, well, today's episode will perhaps change the mm. way people think about it because right now it's from a place of well, the popular um, opinion is that it's seen as something that you know, like you've got a pity, and if someone is living their life, then you're like, oh, you're so remarkable, look yeah. at you, you know, and and hopefully we can flip that and say the issue is society, not the person with a disability, yep. because the society was created for an able-bodied person. So, of course, someone with a disability wouldn't fit in because the society wasn't created for them. Yeah, exactly. Right. And and Carly talks about how people, it's it's like, as you described, like these well-meaning supposedly well-meaning comments that people make all the time Mm. that are actually just microaggressions for people think that they're saying empathetic things or they think that they're trying to help um but it clearly demonstrates how little we understand um like that non-disabled people understand about people's lives that live with impairments and disabilities that we just don't have the understanding and then we say really really harmful things and actually think we're being helpful or kind yeah so yeah it is it does seem like there is a lot of education that needs to be done it's definitely warped yeah you're listening to tuesday breakfast on 3cr for those of us who've just tuned in shame on you <laughs> we just listened to a talk by the incredible um, late Stella Young, and now we're very, very pleased to be able to talk to Dr. Shakira Hussein. Dr. Shakira Hussein is an academic based at the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute, and she has written about you know a lot of things. And one of the things that she's written about is her experience of disability arising from MS, multiple sclerosis, and we're super excited to talk to her today. Thank you for joining us today, Shakira. Oh, thank you for having me on. Um, Shakira, let's start by talking. Um, uh, I guess the general theme about Tuesday Breakfast is um, intersectionality. So maybe let's start by talking about why and how we should think about disability from an intersectional lens. Yeah. Well, disability is experienced at higher rates by people of colour. 
mm. Aboriginal people in Australia in particular, you might be aware of the, the shockingly third rate of blindness. And that kind of affects your take on your disability as well. It's harder to own and take pride of a disabled identity when it's a disability that arises from injustice mm. that's been inflicted upon you that you wouldn't likely be having to deal with if you were white. Mm. And disabled people experience sexual violence at a higher rate than able-bodied people. Mm. So it shapes your identity in complicated ways and your way of being in the world in complicated ways. And it intersects in your racial identity as well. They're not experienced separately. They're compounded. Mm. And can you tell us more about about that? Can I just quickly ask? I'm hearing a bit of echoing on the line. Is it okay, oh. Lauren? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Is that... Okay, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah, let me know if I, if I need to speak louder or anything like that. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, what's called the social model of disability? Yeah, that's a way of thinking about disabilities that says it's not the impairment, the physical impairment of the disability that um, that affects your life. It's the way that the world reacts to it. So that... Um, well, for example, with my multiple cirrhosis, I need a walking crutch when I'm run about outside. Mm. But that's um, you know, that that that's manageable, so long as there are adequate provisions made, like ramps instead of stairs. Mm. But if we live in a society that favours you know, physically agile people and doesn't provide those reasonable adjustments. Well, that's when it becomes an issue. And if and if we live in, living in a society where discrimination against people with a disability is very widespread, well, that is also when it becomes an issue, when it becomes um, an issue for employers when they don't want to give you a job because mm-hmm. they think you won't be able to carry it out because they think you're not going to be a reliable employee when they refuse to make those reasonable accommodations which they're required to do by law. Mm-hmm that's when it becomes a problem. Yeah. And just because they're required to do something by law doesn't mean that they will or they make you feel like it's it's unreasonable to do that, even though it probably isn't. Yeah. And I know, well, for example, a lot of university students that um, talk to me, because I have a visible disability, students who have an invisible disability mm. or chronic medical condition will often speak to me in private about how that's impacting on their lives and how it's making it a real struggle for them to, to continue their studies. Mm. And I try to refer them to the disability support office that, so that they can have those reasonable accommodations made. But mm. they're reluctant to do so because they, I have to say, not without justification, mm. think that other academics will believe that they're just using it, that they're just trying to get an easy run, mm. that, they're, um, that, that they're just playing the system somehow. And I can't pretend that those attitudes don't exist, but we just have to try to fight them every day. Yeah, yeah, and it really happens in academic institutions where, where there should be more understanding about that, don't you think? 
Oh, yes, I had naively thought when I got diagnosed with the multiple sclerosis that academia would be a more disability-friendly mm. environment than others and also mm. that it would offer a degree of flexibility that I wouldn't get in a standard nine-to-five public service job, say. Mm. Not that not, That's not to say that academic work isn't hard work, but theoretically yeah. I ought to be able to do a certain amount of it in my own time and from home, mm. which is true, but at the same time not as much as it could be. Yeah, and I guess there's a push, you know, to keep publishing and to keep, you know, making, uh, making more work and that contradicts how people can and, and respond to that sort of pressure when they have a visible or an invisible illness. And I guess that's, that's the nature of the work that contradicts that as well. Um, is that, has that been your experience? I guess it has. And you, then there's the pressure you impose on yourself as well to show that you can not just do as well as anybody else, but absolutely twice as well as anybody mm, else, mm. so that there's no question. Mm. And yeah, so yeah yeah it makes you very driven yeah and we were reading a, an article that you wrote i think in, from 2014 where you state that you began writing about disability reluctantly and only after years of grappling with topics like racism gender and post 9-11 politics can we talk about that why were you reluctant and how did that journey of writing about disability changed if it has well, for one thing, I'd spent a good long time coming to terms with my religious and racial identities. It was bloody hard work, you know. Mm. And I learned studied languages and I travelled to my paternal home country and, and you know, and, and, and I thought at least there's decent food to be had with that, mm. you know. I've got to say, hospital food, not mm. so fantastic. <laughs> and, um, yeah, yeah. and... I thought, no, 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 I've done the hard work and I understand what discrimination is. I know what that's about. I can't be bothered to do it all over again. Mm. But, well, it, as it became more and more a part of my life and more and more visible. And also as I came to meet people like Stella Young, who you were discussing mm. earlier, yeah. mm-hmm. it's had its rewards as well. And Jack Stuckey Brown, who Melbourne listeners might also know, who has a show mm. at the moment. Mm. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so that was a big part of it and also realizing that experiencing one form of discrimination doesn't necessarily make people anymore um provide people with the kind of insight that you might hope into other forms of discrimination that people who've experienced mm. racial discrimination and gender discrimination are just as capable of being ableist mm. which is to say to um disability discrimination as anybody else. Mm. And ableism seems to be a topic that a lot of these, I guess, social activist spaces don't really talk about or don't really confront. So that's that's actually a really great reminder to actively think about that. Um, yes, I'm yeah. hard to notice that there are starting to be some conversations mm. happening about making um, protests mm. and demonstrations more physically accessible and people asking questions about, oh, should we provide chairs? Mm. Um, how can we make people with a disability feel that they're welcome at events such as Invasion Day, say? Yeah. And that, mm. they're, and that um, it make it less challenging for us to be a part of it. Absolutely. Like, you know, the, the, the physical, not intentional, but still, it amounts to physical jostling at those kind of events, even from people on your own side. Mm. 
make it kind of quite scary at times. And yet at the same time, you want to be there. You want to help to show the flag like everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. And there should be provisions made to you know, make everyone feel welcome. Um, Shakira, I also wanted to talk about, um, you've, you've written a lot about how harmful ideas of disability are very much present in film and TV and media representation generally. Um, in, in one particular article, you unpacked media responses to Stephen Hawking's passing. Could you elaborate on how film and TV and media represent disability? It's- yeah, that's troubling on all kinds of levels. Actually, Trevor Noah raised that on his show just recently over the casting of an able-bodied star, mm. Brian Cranston, as a dis- in a disabled role. It's very hard for disabled people, with physical disability anyhow, mm. to get those kinds of roles. Mm. And so, and the term that disability activists use for the casting of non-disabled actors in disabled roles is face. Why is it acceptable to have crip face now in an age where black face and yellow face mm-hmm. are regarded as completely abhorrent? Mm-hmm. And they're not just acceptable, but even a route to an Oscar historically, it has been, think of Dustin Hoffman in Raymond, say, mm-hmm. to that cripping up that is seen as a, some kind of a challenge for mm-hmm. an actor that will lead them to you know, fame and glory. Yeah. And um, it's and we like one international disability activist who I've been honoured to meet is oh goodness now honoured to meet and now I can't remember her name she's on Silent Witness mm-hmm. um, and I think she's L- is that Liz Liz um, Keller yeah yeah mm-hmm. and um, yeah and who's a fabulous talent and who ought to be getting much more work than I. Um, in my opinion, mm. than she gets, and who also had to um, be assertive about her right to have the kind of billing that the other stars were getting and to have the kind of complicated timeline and backstory to her character. Mm. You know, But you can see how well she's fulfilled that and who brought her live show to Australia a few years ago, mm. which was... Um, which, which was um, which was euthanasia the musical because she's also a very active campaigner against the legalization of euthanasia Mm, yeah yeah and we really do want to get into that as well but maybe we'll take a short break just for listeners to to reflect on what's been happening so far and we'll come back to you soon Transitions Film Festival returns to Cinema Nova this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about what it means to be human. Featuring local and international documentaries, the festival covers social and technological innovations, big ideas and changemakers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, food revolutions, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, February the 21st to March the 8th at Cinema Nova. Tickets from transitionsfilmfestival.com. A 3CR supporter. We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we. They're 100% cotton and Australian made and you can get one for just $30. They come in black, dark grey and a cool light grey. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 9419 8377 
or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. Would you like to get involved in the decision-making process at 3CR? Nominations are now open in 3CR's Community Radio Federation elections. You can stand as a subscriber representative and have valuable input into the programming and future direction of this diverse and dynamic radio station. Nominations are due by Friday the 1st of March at 5pm. For more information, contact 3CR Station Manager on 9419 8377 or download the nomination form at the 3CR website 3cr.org.au forward slash people Tune in, dig deep and clean up by purchasing some fantastic discounted gardening books from 3CR's online garden store We have books on waterwise gardening, organic vegetables roses, climbers and creepers and even clematis It's easy just go to our website, 3cr.org.au, and follow the links on the front page. Don't have internet access? Call the station during business hours between 9 and 5, and we'll post out a catalogue in the mail. All proceeds help keep Melbourne's favourite gardening show on air for another year. Tune in 7.30am every Sunday morning. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Ayan, George and myself, Anya. We're in the middle of talking to the incredible Dr. Shakira Hussein, um, who's an academic based at the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and is a, is an advocate for a lot of things, including disability rights. Um, Shakira, uh, just before we went for that break, you were talking about... Um, you know, euthanasia and how there's, there's that movement of people, um, advocates who oppose euthanasia. And you've written pieces on why you don't support euthanasia yourself. Could you maybe talk to us about why that is and, and break down what that movement is about? A lot of disabled people, including the late Stella Young, are opposed to euthanasia because of the way that it's presented as a merciful release mm. from impairments that we deal with every day and a reasonable option in that in, in that regard. And um, like there was a movie a few years ago mm. that exemplified this You Before Me based on a novel in which a character who'd become a paraplegic uh, falls in love with a beautiful young woman but it ends with him going to Switzerland all the same to end his life. Mm, mm. And this is presented as a brave decision. And also he leaves all his money to the pretty young woman, so, you know, happy endings are around mm, there. Mm. And um, and uh, um, those who advocate for euthanasia, and I have had friendly discussions with some of them, others um, start acting as though talking about... Mm. needing to wipe their own asses as though I'm mm. running towards them personally to, you know, sexually assault them and fondle their asses and that's what it's all about, really. Or that I would enjoy having other people wipe my own bum. But anyhow, I don't know why mm. they're so obsessed with ass wiping in this <laughs> debate, but anyhow, mm. there you go. Mm. That's, the, that's, that's the bottom line for most people. No, if I can't wipe my own bottom, yeah. that's it. 
Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of people who actually don't always wipe their own bottom lead happy and, in fact, public lives. Mm. But anyway, Mm. you wouldn't know that to see them on stage, you know, being funny, being Mm. entertaining, being great company. But anyways, Mm. um, yeah, so, um, but yeah, but getting rewinding, Mm. those who advocate for euthanasia will generally say, oh, well, for one thing, it will be voluntary. Nobody's going to force you to end your own life. Mm-hmm. And that um, it's only for people, or in the case of the Victorian legislation, only for people with terminal illness. Mm-hmm. But as opponents of disability, or some note, it, overseas where this kind of legislation has been introduced, it really has been a slippery slope, which I know is a problematic term, but all the same, that in the Netherlands it started out being introduced for very restrictive conditions only for adults, only for people with terminal diseases. But now it is being made available to people with depression, mm-hmm. to children, to a much wider range of people. It does. It has overseas expanded. The slippery slope is not some kind of alarmist myth. Mm. It, it does exist. You can see it in practice overseas. And in terms of voluntary, mm. well... It's it's only available to people with particular medical conditions. Um, patients with multiple cirrhosis have gone to Switzerland mm. to end their lives. And if it's and in that sense, it's seen as making sense for people with disabilities in a way that it isn't seen as making sense for able-bodied mm. people. Like and. It's another way in which our lives are devalued and seen as less useful. Mm, mm. And for me, I, I can't say that there haven't been regular points at which, not at which I wanted to end my life right there and then on the spot, apart from anything else. I'm a parent, I've got responsibilities, but you know, mm. but where kind of you thought I just couldn't go on. I mm. don't want my medical professional in those circumstances to, um, but not that I can see any of my current medical professionals doing it there, but I want to be able to go to my doctors and tell them how I'm feeling and know that they're going to help me to go on, not mm-hmm. that they're going to say, well, actually, if you re- if that's how you're feeling. Mm-hmm. You know. And I also note that there are differing levels of medical support for people from different groups. Well, like there mm-hmm. has been medical mm-hmm. studies like academic studies done showing that Aboriginal people who with kidney problems are far less likely to get a transplant than non-Aboriginal people now. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm sure that their doctors don't think that they're saying, oh, well, let's not waste a perfectly good kidney on this black fella. Let's give it to the white man instead. Mm. But there are internalised prejudices at play there and thinking whether the the Aboriginal patient will, you know, follow the guidelines or whether the Aboriginal family members will follow the kind of procedures and follow the kind of health care that needs to be undertaken. You know, I, mm. I can only guess at what the rationale might be, but mm. I think there's all kinds of racialized assumptions that come into play there. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's been quite a lot of 
research and, and literature on the unconscious bias and the way certain communities, um, including Aboriginal communities, black and POC communities, are diagnosed and treated by the medical community. And um, it, Look, I yeah. took a hell of a long time to get diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Mm. Of course I can't telepathically know what doctors were thinking in that regard, but I do think that my racial identity like and my gender identity, for that matter, mm. likely came into it. Well, I remember the doctor who told me that it was a psychiatric problem at a moment when mm. I actually couldn't walk without support. Mm. Said that it was it, it was very pro- common with women like you. Mm. Like, what do you mean, postgraduate mean? students? Yeah. yeah, you know, brown women. Yeah, you hardly know me. Why women like me? Yeah, yeah. and there's even been studies where um, that it's it's assume that black people have or people of color have like a higher threshold for pain which is really messed up and when you think about all the medical interventions that have been uh, that have happened and they've happened because they've been like forcibly done on black people so the medical field there is an argument that the medical field does have this weird relationship to black bodies and and racialized bodies. Oh yes, for sure. And um, well, if you look at the history of contraception, for example, mm. it was um, the Puerto Rican women who were given the first um, trials of it at dangerously high doses. Mm-hmm. So you know, I'm not against reproductive freedom. Don't get me wrong. Mm. But every time we um, we use our now safe and widespread contraceptive. We should think of the women in Puerto Rico whose lives were shortened mm. because they were the first guinea pigs for it. Yeah, it's it's all about looking at the value that that's attached to certain bodies and which bodies are disposable. And there's definitely a reason, I think personally, why people of colour may want to fight more for their rights, mm. um, the, 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 the rights over their body, I think, personally. Yeah, I have to say I try to dress up my absolutely most middle class when I'm in the going to the hospital, which is, of course, not always possible. Then they tell you to get straight into a hospital gown and that's all the way. You try to make yourself look... Like you could potentially be a staff member rather than a patient, you know, mm. um, walking at um, mobility aid and all, you know, to try to, yeah, to, not to, I don't mean to try and pass as mm. white because my skin ain't going to change, but mm-hmm. like, mm. but to try and pass as, as yeah, as, as middle class, as, as yeah. acceptable, as, you know, articulate and intelligent is absolutely not um, using a mobility aid because of a, psychiatric condition so that um, doctors experience with that neurologist to use that particular line you can see left a deep mark <laughs> yeah it's a way to legitimize your existence in a way that shouldn't need to be yeah yeah yeah, and yeah. yes and um, I'm I'm not my symptoms are real. Please treat them as such. Please give me the kind of care that I need. Mm. And please don't talk to me in that patronizing mm. fucking tone of voice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, Shakira, we, we have to wrap up soon, but I cannot 
not ask you about this. Could you talk to us about um, links between feminist th- theory or activism and disability theory or activism? Well, feminism has been white feminism, anyhow. Mm-hmm. Slow off the mark on this, as with race, and there, but there are some awesome disabled feminists, mm. and um, who are not getting the kind of space and the kind of platform that they ought to. Um, Stella Young was one. Jack Stacky Brown, another. Kat Duncan, and I mean, among other things, who've been very articulate about claiming their sexuality. Mm. And like because well, rights to be sexual beings is something that disabled men and women have to fight for mm. because it's like it's acceptance is kind of seen as being and the the kind of pitiful is that where you're this kind of asexual and, and except for the purposes of assault, then absolutely you're a sexual being for the purposes of like being raped and molested, mm. which, as I said earlier, disabled people experience at a higher rate than non-disabled people, mm. disabled mm. men as well as women. Mm. Um, and so, but having to reclaim that positive experience of sexuality and to have a sexual partner and a sexual partner who's not seen as making huge sacrifices on your behalf, a sexual partner mm. who might be disabled themselves or who might be able-bodied but who enjoys being part of your life, who doesn't see himself only in the role as your carer, mm. and who doesn't think that they're, you know, could um, be doing better, except that they don't want to break the heart of the poor crip. You know, mm. that's something that disabled feminists have had to fight for very hard, yeah. and and be in your very in your face about it, be very raunch feminist about. Mm. Sorry, that was a bit long-winded. I know. No, no, absolutely not. This, uh, this is this is an incredible conversation, and we're all in the studio just just reflecting and absorbing so much from you. And you know, despite these links, these obvious links between feminism and disability theory and activism, it seems as though there isn't much engagement in mainstream feminist writing about this. Is that is that a correct um, is that correct? Is that your experience? Oh, absolutely. It's. Um and I will say, like, um, early on in the um, um, course of, of after the multiple sclerosis diagnosis, one of the um, academics who I had um, disability issues mm. from was a gender studies academic mm. who, mm. when another staff member tried to hire me as a tutor for a course, vetoed that, and was very explicit, and luckily mm. very explicit in emails, or I wouldn't have got very far, but mm. said in emails that my medical condition meant that I would not be able to fit the institutional requirements of the university. And even when I had the multiple sclerosis nurse come into her office and explain what accommodations were necessary and explain why mm. it shouldn't be a factor, over the course of the next semester still refused to listen. Now, once I took that to the disability office and mm-hmm. it was escalated to her superiors, she had to back down. But, yeah, that ended any illusions that I might have had mm. that feminists were going to be less ableist than anybody else. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you expect feminism as a 
I guess, a, you know, a group of feminists to be all welcoming and, and encompassing and and sometimes it's really disappointing when they're not. Yeah. Well, you would think that they would recognize, if nothing else, they would recognize a blazing disability discrimination lawsuit yeah. <laughs> when it was staring them in the face, even yeah. if they had their own inner prejudices still at play. But she didn't. She was so unaware that, as I said, she'd put it in writing. Mm. She could have vetoed my employment on other kinds of grounds and I would have had a hard time proving that it was down to the multiple sclerosis but um, I, will, yeah. I hesitate to say fortunately but fortunately for me she mm. was um, yeah she she was so unaware of it that she put it in writing yeah yeah I mean at I least just remember yeah. her telling me nobody is doubting your brilliance but you can be brilliant at home like <gasps> oh my free. god <laughs> yeah, at least don't be so blatant about your prejudice, hey. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, mm. you know, yeah. Mind you, I prefer to be out there in public where I can see it and shoot it, but still. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I do. Sometimes I want it out there in public where I can see it and shoot it, and other times I'm like, I don't care if you don't like me, just shut the up and be polite in public and don't yeah. make me have to listen to this. So, yeah, it depends what yeah. time of day you ask me that question. Yeah. At the moment, I yeah. put it out there where I can see it. Yeah, absolutely. And Shakira, just one final question um, for our listeners out there who've um, who've been listening to this and, and want to read up more about this issue. Um, which disability activists or writers do you recommend we should follow or read up on? Um, definitely Jack Stucky Brown, as mm-hmm. I said. Oh, Carly Finlay has mm-hmm. a book coming out this year. Mm-hmm. Or, I don't know, it's already out, I believe. Yeah. And um, So you can get hold of that one. Mm-hmm. Um, Kath Duncan, who you can see Melbourne listeners can catch on stage at a regular basis mm-hmm. overseas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's, oh, goodness, um, Silent Witness Star. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, anyhow, um, yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And we'll put put up all of that on our Facebook and and Twitter and all of that. Thank you so much for joining us today, Shakira. That was wonderful. Thank you for having me. And (laughs) welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. Um, That voice you heard trying to sneak in was George not knowing her lane. No, I'm kidding. I'm I'm joking. Um, so the first song you heard um, after Shakira's interview was Friends with Feelings by Alice Skye. Um, and then we heard, was it Friends with Feelings? No, For Those Who Need It, I do apologize, by Alice Skye. And then we heard Ancestors by Dreaming Now and Mad um, featuring Little Wayne, with Solange or Solange with Lil Wayne. Um, so right now we have on uh, we have on the line Mario Poseja, who is a community worker, teacher, producer, presenter um, of the show Chronic- Chronically Chilled on 3CR. Uh, Mario hosts Chronically Chilled with Maurice, and now we're going to be discussing everything chronic illness. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Mario. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Mario. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for still staying on the line. That was a really close call. Um, <laughs> can you start us off by um, giving us an overview of what chronic illness is? 
Um, so I guess the simplest way to put it, it it's an illness that is long-lasting. So um, the general marker is probably longer than three months, um, and it can be physical, mental, or genetic as well. Um, and unlike what the medical shows have you believe, there's usually no easy or quick cure if there's a cure at all. So it usually leads to, you know, gradual deterioration of health for people and then, you know, loss of independence and and all that stuff that comes with it. Mm. And for those of us who rely on the Australian public health care system, it's costly and because chronic illness is long-term, there's a lot of management required. Um, What are the gaps in in Australia's healthcare system? Um, so I guess it really depends on the illness or disability that you have. Um, I think there's a huge diversity of experiences among people with chronic illness and disability, mm. um, and not everybody's experiences are kind of the same or even close to being the same. So I'm kind of just really aware and I want to acknowledge that kind of what I say today probably might not meet other people's experiences, and that's, yeah, um, I thought I'd just put that in there. Mm. Um, so for me, kind of diagnosis and diagnoses aren't really equal in terms of the medical care that you receive. Um, so I've got a heart, I've got a heart um, or congenital heart disease and respiratory illness as well. So for me, I have relative privilege um, in the Australian healthcare system. You know, um, it's socially accepted. My illness, there's a world class clinic in Melbourne that you know I access. And, you know, even if I wasn't happy with that clinic, I've got the choice to kind of go somewhere else as well, you know, to to kind of access the care that I I kind of need. Mm. Um, And it's congenital, so I don't get interrogated or blamed for kind of my illness. Mm. And I'm I'm relatively young, so, you know, the healthcare system is kind of more invested in me, I guess. Yeah. Um, Do you think there's certain chronic illnesses that are seen as more immediate or um, are believed more than others? Totally, yeah. I mean, you know, diabetes, heart disease, you know, cancer, you know, these kind of ones that you kind of hear about more are kind of more accepted, I guess, and there's better care and, you know, more funding and more research goes into it as well. Um, But it's not the case for rare illnesses. So for ME-CFS, or it's commonly known as chronic fatigue syndrome as well, mm. um, Alice Danlos syndrome, there's fibromyalgia. These are kind of rarer illnesses. And with that, I think the more rarer the illness, it means it's also really expensive mm. to kind of access medical care and support and stuff. So, um, yeah, and a lot of people who have those rare illnesses are usually not believed and it takes ages for a diagnosis to happen. So they have to access a lot of different doctors, Mm. second opinion, third opinion, things like that. And like you kind of said before, kind of that all costs, Mm. you know, so yeah. And I was listening to the first episode of Chronically Chilled um, when you were talking, when you were just pretty much introducing what chronic illness is and, um, M- uh, Maurice, am I pronouncing it wrong? Ma- yeah, yeah, Maurice? Yep. So she talked about how there's this assumption by the public that 
with chronic illness, there should be a cure, uh, that, that there's like an end goal rather than that yeah. something that's ongoing. Did you want to touch, uh, elaborate on that? Yeah, so I, I guess, um, I guess, yeah, there's, there's, there's kind of, we kind of get people with chronic illness and, you know, disability will know and um, will kind of relate to this, but we kind of get a whole bunch of unhelpful advice from people. So people start turning into medical professionals and stuff. Um, and there seems to be this kind of pressure that we need to always be striving to get better. Mm. And that there's an assumption that there's always a cure. Mm. Um, and if we're not getting better, then it's kind of our fault. So yeah. It's kind of this thing that happens and the way we talk about chronic illness and, you know, disability as well, it's, it's kind of, yeah, it kind of, we need to do some work around how we talk about it as well. Right. And in terms of employment, whether it's looking for work or, um, holding onto a job, um, what issues exist for people with chronic illness? Um, so I don't think we, I think we need to kind of talk about this in the context of some, you know, really unhelpful societal values. Mm. So, um, you know, in the context of we live in a society where the values individualism, you know, we're told to kind of compete against each other and productivity is, you know, celebrated and rewarded. Um, and I guess people with chronic illness, it's not easy for us to fit in a system like that when it comes to employment. Mm. Um, and I guess I feel like we have to get the job twice. So what I mean by that is, you know, we go through the system, we go through the process of, um, you know, job interview, job application, all that stuff. And if we get to that point and we get the job, then we kind of have to also have this conversation about are we going to get supported in this and are the employer actually going to be flexible and all the things that comes with kind of having a chronic illness and working. Mm -hmm. So I guess there's like a, yeah, double the process. Um, and it's kind of, sometimes people have really good experiences, sometimes people have really bad experiences. And the bad experiences happen even in industries and sectors that we don't really expect. So I remember going for a job about over 10 years ago now. Mm. But I went through this job application. I had an interview. I got the job. And then I didn't hear from them again for ages. And after calling them and all that stuff, um, they kind of said, well, um, what we need from you is uh, a letter from your doctor that guarantees mm. that nothing's going to happen while you're working. And That's the so job that... Up. The job that the job that I went for was actually about supporting young people to um, gain access to employment and education. So the irony of that is just oh, yeah, that's so, huge. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow, especially in that kind of sector where it's all about understanding people's strengths and accommodating their like yeah. making yeah making accommodations and and that isn't happening and yeah it's really disheartening hey it it was i just couldn't believe it because yeah and and i think the thing now is that um organizations and companies and kind of workplaces in general 
are kind of more risk adverse and are worried about liability and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I think discrimination probably doesn't happen in a more, um, like in that case with me, but it's probably more subtle. So it's probably, you know, um, a meeting people from the interview process, for example, if they check the box on the disability kind of, um, you know, the, the disability box that we kind of have to sometimes check the job applications and stuff. Yeah. Um, and I think it also happens in the workplace just in terms of getting messages like, you know, everybody has to have the same workload and, you know, um, being told that you're going to be supported, but then if you take a bit, if you take a few days off, then kind of being questioned around that. Mm. So I think it, I, from my experience and from talking to others, it happens kind of in those really subtle ways. Um, but yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a really difficult kind of place or system to kind of work under. Because at the end of the day, yeah, if if we value productivity more than pretty much anything, then I guess we're going to struggle in some ways. One hundred percent. That's absolutely true. And um, that's I think that's a point that Shakira was making as well. How, um, and I've I've been thinking about it as well as someone who um, <clears throat> experiences a lot of like. Mental health um, challenges, I think, is the best way to describe it. And you, you sometimes have to think about: should I disclose it? And if I do disclose it, what are the risks involved? And sometimes you don't disclose it, and you you get the job, and then halfway you're like, oh god, I should have said something. So it's like yeah. added stress of you know, what what do they want to know? What should I tell them? And yeah. Yeah, it's it, it's it's really difficult, and I don't. It's weird because they have all these boxes, you know, asking us to tick these boxes. But is it a way for them to, you know, mm. like like what's the point of ticking boxes if you're not going to support us? Yeah, and 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 can you trust that if you tick that box, mm. then it really is going to mean that you're not going to get discriminated against? You know, like it's. It's a really difficult process, and that's what I was kind of saying before, is we kind of go through these two processes of getting a job, you know. Mm. Um, and, yeah, so I, I think it's really difficult, and I guess I've I've made the decision that I'm just going to be totally honest whenever I go for a job. Um, but I guess I can probably afford to do that. I have I can kind of hunt around a little bit and be a bit picky, mm. but for a lot of people out there, they don't have the opportunity to do that. You know, they, they they kind of don't have a lot of options and any kind of work is, is is you know, really hard to get, kind of, especially when you're limited in capacity in terms of what your body's doing. Mm. And for the for people just tuning in, um, we're lis- uh, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast and we have on the line with us Mario, who is the pro- one of the producers and presenters of Chronically Chilled. And that that's actually my next question. Can you tell us about the show Chronically Chilled, how it got started and why a show like that is needed on the air? Um, so Chronically, <laughs> I think I've told this story on air before or something, but yeah, I, I pretty much had a really bad um, period of time where I was really struggling um, with my health, and I ended up having to stop working for a little while. 
um, but I wanted to get involved in something. Um, so I turned up the 3CR and was kind of just wanting to do reception and whatever else kind of I can help around. Um, but, yeah, they're really good at getting you to go to training here to, to present. <laughs> so I did that. Um, and then I just sat next to Maurice and um, we kind of, yeah, during the training we kind of got talking and we kind of both shared similar experiences and same medical team at the time. Um, yeah, all these kind of things just aligned. So uh, we weren't really kind of going into the training thinking we're going to do a show about chronic illness. We weren't really sure what we're going to do. But it kind of just, we just thought let's kind of do this. And we kind of had a look around and I guess there wasn't much around, around chronic illness or stuff that I found to be useful, I guess. Mm. Um, so I thought, yeah, so we kind of just thought let's do this and um, we kind of, yeah, we kind of got a lot of support around it and people seemed like it was, people were kind of saying it's a good idea and it's not kind of heard enough about. So, um, you know, when you think about it, 50% of the population has chronic illness of some description, mm. um, but it's really not talked about very often. You know, so I guess that's why the show came about and stuff. Yeah. Um, Maurice has kind of taken a break because she's kind of got the medical stuff and health stuff going, but hopefully she'll be back soon. Mm. Yeah, I, as I've listened to, as I, as I mentioned before, I listened to the first episode and what I like about this show and I think what others will appreciate about it is that chronic illness, obviously the myths are like unmyth. What's the opposite of, so basically like the stigma is taken away from chronic illness, but also chronic illness is seen as uh, the show like does a really good job of showing that it can be managed that it's yes it's something that's ongoing but also it's something that you can live with yeah and i i think one of the things that i want to also always kind of made a focus is to not just talk about kind of the personal struggle of it all but also talk about kind of systemic issues and and kind of things that happen that i guess contribute to chronic illness and disability so mm. I don't think we talk enough about kind of the societal impact um, and, you know, the kind of, um, you know, uh, mean that, you know, there are systems and things that kind of can lead us to getting even more unwell. Mm. So I guess we're trying to kind of also address some of that stuff and have, I guess, a broader conversation, um, which is kind of more than just kind of talking about kind of you know, day-to-day kind of experiences and stuff. Mm. Um, because chronic illness and, you know, mental health um, difficulties and, and stuff are on the rise. Mm. Um, but then so is inequality. So I guess how to, you know, it's interesting that those two can go hand-in-hand in, hand in terms of there's more disadvantage, there's more discrimination out there. And I guess they're the things that I kind of, I guess we want to kind of ask questions about is, does that then lead to us getting sicker as kind of um, a community, I guess, yeah. Mm-mm. And for those of us who want to know more about um, chronic illness, what are some websites like Twitter or even Twitter podcasts that you would suggest? I didn't have enough time to research this properly. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
I'm going to point people to a documentary. Um, it's on Netflix. I hope people can have access to, to it. But it's called Unrest, um, and it's by Jennifer Breyer, um, and it's about living with MECFS. So, like I said before, that's more commonly known as chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm. Um, but that's a really accurate portrayal of what it's like to live with chronic illness. Um, so, yeah, I'd kind of recommend people have a kind of... Um, check that out and um, yeah like I said that's that's probably one of the more um, realistic kind of portrayals of, of chronic illness mm. um, and the last thing I want to do is just send a shout out to there's a really fantastic scene of politically minded artists and writers mm. with, um, chronic illness here in Melbourne so there's an art collective called In Sickness and Stealth mm, um, yeah. so if people check that out on Facebook They'll be able to find a whole bunch of artists and stuff there um, just from previous events and stuff. And I kind of urge people to go and get along and support kind of their events and stuff because, yeah, they're, they're doing an amazing job. Excellent. Thank you so much, Mario. No worries. Let me start by saying, hey, how you doing? No, it's been a minute since I hit And the song you heard before this was Tando with Happy. And then followed by The Children Came Back by Briggs. This is for you, Lauren, <laughs> your favorite artist. Um, so we just thought we'll, we'll talk about who we had on the show today and what to expect from next week. Um, so today's show was our special summer school program on disability and accessibility, and we talked to the incredible Dr. Shakira Hussein about intersectionality um, and the activism space um, uh, in disability rights. And she mentioned a couple of really incredible people that we should be following. All of that is on Twitter already. And then we talked to Mario, who does the show Chronically Chilled on 3CR, incredible show everyone should listen to. Next week is our last week on, on summer school, which is really sad, but I think... Um, we don't want to keep this going for too long <laughs> and have people, you know, stop listening. <laughs> what are we going to be talking about next week, George? Prison abolition. Prison abolition. Yes. Which is a very, um, I guess, a topic that all of us at Tuesday Brecky are very passionate about mm. and excited to learn more about as yeah. well. Especially since, um, so George and I went to the Sisters Insight conference last year yes. about prison abolition where... 
Angela Davis was the keynote speaker, and we have started, you know, the, the team at Tuesday Breakfast has really started to understand um, what that means and how we can contribute in that mm. space. And given everything that's happening in the in the criminal justice system here in Victoria, we think it's very important for our listeners to have at least an idea of what that means and why it's yes. important. Yeah, it was a pretty life-changing experience, and hopefully some of our guests next week will have also been at that conference Mm. yeah yeah and um i know i say this every week but please text us (laughs) (laughs) tell us how you feel about the show our number is zero four double eight eight zero nine eight double five that's zero four double eight eight zero nine eight double five I think Ayan is texting me right now. Uh, I think no, I'm tired of this desperation. <laughs> I just pulled up my phone. If you go to GoFundMe, there's a campaign called Free the People, mm. and it's yes. by Sisters Inside. So the money that you donate will go to paying the fines of women in um, in, pre- well, in jail for unpaid fines, and that's messed up. So, so mm. far they've raised, I think, over like... 300,000. It's incredible. And I think they just released something the other day saying that over 60 women already have been um, gotten out of prison and that they're going to continue to do that and, you know, paying warrants and all this kind of stuff. It's it's pretty incredible that how quickly the money has been put towards this. Absolutely. Yeah, and it shouldn't have to come from the people. No. Mm. But it has, and it just goes to show how much momentum there is in this space and how much people care. And that's what's important to remember. So we'll we'll probably end up talking about this next week yeah. as well, and we'll post that link on Facebook. So yeah. go check some dollars that mm. way. Um, and I just wanted to plug Carly Finley's new book once mm. again, just before the end of today's show. It's called Say Hello, and it's really really brilliant. So if you can get your hands on that, highly recommend. Mm. Thanks for joining us today, folks. What are we doing? What are we um, listening yeah. to next? So. After this, we're going to um, act, will be Accent of Women, and Accent of Women will be looking at the 2015 Nigerian elections, mm. um, an election that a lot of people say um, that social media was the standout in that it got a lot of people voting, it um, mobilized people into action. So yeah, so check that out, and you've been listening to Tuesday Breakfast.